0: This is Lesson 6. We're going to cover Mark 3, I think. Did I get that right or did I forget to change that number? Yeah, Mark 3. A biblical understanding of conversion and evangelism. Uh, A really great lesson here. Quite a bit of ground to cover, so let's open in a word of prayer and then we'll begin. Our Father in Heaven, I pray that You would help us on this Lord's Day to fix our minds and hearts upon You. Help us to Think with clarity and I pray that we would believe the truth of your word which is revealed to us both in the Sunday school hour and in the morning worship as well. Help us to submit ourselves to your most holy word individually and corporately as a congregation so that we might live in a way that is pleasing to you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. A biblical understanding of conversion and evangelism. This is the third mark presented in this book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. I'm going to move rather quickly uh, through this outline. As you can see, it's two full pages here. What do you think of when you hear the word conversion? Dever asks. In our day, any suggestion that you can change deeply is regarded with serious suspicion. Uh, We are who we are, so they say, and rather than question our innate desires, we should be proud of it and even promote it. Uh, That line there, I thought that's truer today than it ever was. Um, People are who they are, they think, and if you suggest that I should change, you know there's a real problem with that. Um, And yet, Dever also notes, for all this uncertainty and suspicious about the possibility of change, uh, people do have a deep longing for change at the same time. So it is a bit ironic in our culture. On the one hand, our culture seems to say that change is not possible. We're born the way that we are, and who are you to say that I should be other than what I am? You need to accept me. You even need to celebrate me. At the same time, people seem to be longing for change, and you can just look in our culture at all of the, you know, self-help books that are out there, um, for example, and and the market there is for that sort of thing. You know, books that will teach you how to how to change for the better, be it in your marriage or as a parent or whatever it may be. What does the Bible say about deep, real, meaningful change, though? Of course, that's the question we're going to be concerned to answer here. In the context of this book, of course, we are talking about the great change that takes place in conversion. Conversion is literally turning. Turning from sin to repenting of our sins and turning from trusting in ourselves to trusting only in Christ to reconcile us to God. Uh, So, we are talking about biblical conversion here and conversion is turning. Turning from sin uh, to walking away from it. Uh, repenting, turning from trusting in ourselves to trusting only in Christ. See Paul's summary of his preaching in Acts twenty twenty one. I have a note here. I think I'll let you do that on your own time. I do have a note here though to read the last paragraph on page 94. Uh, I thought it was a good paragraph and I did not want to include it in its entirety in the outline here. It would take up too much space. So page 94, last full paragraph. If we think conversion is something we alone do, then we will evangelize one way. If we think that conversion is something that most fundamentally God does, then we will evangelize another way. Remember this chapter is on a biblical understanding of conversion and evangelism. And so what Deborah is pointing out to us here is that there is a connection between these two things. If we think that conversion is something that we do in and of ourselves, it's going to lead us to evangelize in a particular way. But if we realize that conversion is a work that God does within us most fundamentally, uh, though of course, we have a part to play in that, uh, then we 're going to evangelize in another way. Uh, this chapter' is really important, brothers and sisters um, and again i 'm thinking back to when I first read this book back in I guess two thousand and eleven uh, and to the thinking about the way that it resonated with me at the time, being a Calvinist at that time, uh, believing in the sovereignty of God over salvation and in conversion, and noticing that. Um, It does have an impact upon the way that we do evangelism. And how we evangelize will determine, I quote Dever again, "...in no small part our church's health, as surely as what food you're buying at the store, affects your physical body's fitness. Anemic evangelism will starve us, and we will waste away. Careless evangelism will stuff us with false converts, and our church will become sick, unsound, and dysfunctional, and perhaps it will even die." I really appreciated those two sentences there. If we are anemic, if we are weak in evangelism, we will starve as a congregation and will eventually waste away. But careless evangelism will stuff us with false converts and that will lead to sickness of another kind, unsoundness, dysfunction, uh, and then perhaps leading even to the death of a congregation. But a biblical understanding of conversion will encourage us to be biblical To a biblical practice of evangelism, a biblical understanding of conversion and evangelism is a mark of a healthy church. Uh, That's well said there, bottom of page 94, top of page 95. A biblical understanding of conversion is the first main section in this chapter. Let me run through it quickly for you. According to the Bible, this is a crucial part of the good news, we need to be converted Our state by nature is not good. You don't need a better you. You need a new you. And that is what God provides for us in Christ. Our past sins need to be forgiven. Our present lives need to be reoriented. Our future destiny needs to be changed from the hell of God's good judgment to the heaven of God's gracious forgiveness and acceptance in Christ. Um, I do like the little phrase there. You don't need a better you. You need a new you. We need to be... Converted. True conversion is a change of mind, but it is not just a change of mind. It is a change of heart, though not a mindless emotional experience. Okay, so true conversion is a change of mind, but it's more than that. The heart needs to be changed as well. Um, but when we talk about change of heart, we're not just talking about a mindless emotional experience. We're talking about conversion that is thorough, that that touches the whole of our being, uh, that, that, that our human nature itself is renewed in Christ, our souls are renewed, mind, will, and affections are renewed in conversion. As, God's con- as God converts the heart and gives new birth, new actions flow from our new identity as those who are united to Christ by faith. So conversion is a change of mind, it's a change of heart leading to a change of actions a change in our way of life. Mind, affections, we might say, will. The three parts of man's soul are all converted when God does a work upon a sinner. We have a new mind, a new heart, new affections, and even a new will strengthened by God through Christ and by the working of the Holy Spirit. According to the Bible, the real change of Christian conversion involves relying on Christ alone. In true conversion, we begin to rest in Christ, to trust in Him and rely on His merit alone before God. We must realize that because of our sin, we are truly desperate before God. Our only hope is ultimately Christ. You can see I'm just picking up little sentences from Dever here uh, for the sake of brevity. But uh, that, that gets to the point of what he's saying on page 98... If you were to ask the world how is it that you will change for the better, they have no such hope as this. Uh, For them, they will change only by their willpower alone. Uh, Implementing new tactics, becoming more disciplined perhaps, you see. Uh, Using this new method perhaps will produce some change in whatever area of their life they think change is needed. But we know that true change... It comes by the power of God working in us, and then as we work towards sanctification, towards further change, we work not in our own strength, but with the strength that God provides. Our only hope is ultimately Christ. We must repent of our sins and trust in Christ, and we can do that only by the power of God's Spirit, who takes the words we read and hear and uses them to create life and faith in our previously dark and dead souls. We need God to give us life. We need God to give us new hearts. Uh, So you could see that Dever is a Calvinist. He believes in the sovereignty of God over salvation. He believes in the sovereignty of God as it pertains to conversion. Uh, Do we convert ourselves or does God convert us? Answer, fundamentally and primarily, it is God who converts us. He changes us. And we also do change, but only by God's grace. Only by God's grace and with the strength that He provides. It is God who takes the initiative to convert us. It is God who gives us the new life. It is God who gives us the new birth. We are involved in these things, of course, but only by the grace of God. In fact, Ezekiel 11.19, an Old Testament prophet, spoke of the coming new covenant. In this way, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put in them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. And then here on page 99, Dever talks, uh, uses the language of being born again. Christians sometimes talk about being born again, he says. And I didn't include it in the outline, but he made a funny little comment here about this, not just being a marketing ploy of the Southern Baptist Convention, you know. Uh, this language of being born again, but uh, an actual biblical concept here. And he uh, quotes John 3 2 through 5 uh, in its entirety and then makes some comments on it. Of course, this language of being born again is biblical. It comes from this interaction between Jesus and a religious leader within Israel. A man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, what wanted to know what he had to do to see the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't say that he should simply keep up the good work, keep living a good moral religious life, or keep teaching. No, Jesus said that this virtuous leader needed a whole new life that only God could give him. If he was to see the kingdom of God, if he was to enter the kingdom of God, then he would need to be born again. That is to say, born um, from above by the working of the Holy Spirit. Uh, when it comes to birth, uh, brothers and sisters you should know this, we did not choose to be born physically. Birth was something that happened to us. Uh, we, we were brought into this world physically speaking and given life on this earth uh, without any um, involvement of, of our own. And so it is with um, spiritual birth. spiritual new birth is something that happens to us as the Holy Spirit works upon us through the preaching of the Word of God. And then we do begin to live a new life in Christ Jesus as we live in reliance upon Christ and as the Holy Spirit works in us. Joel 2.32 is an important passage. It was used by Peter as he preached after the day of Pentecost Uh, And it is often quoted, and I've quoted it as well when sharing the gospel, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Isn't that a wonderful statement? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Of course, it is implied here that people call upon the name of the Lord truthfully and with sincerity in their hearts. But all who call upon the name of the Lord truthfully will be saved. Our salvation is by the grace of God alone. It is not something that we must earn in in any way, shape, or form. And so there's a very succinct and and beautiful statement here, a a wonderful promise. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But Dever wants us to see Joel 2.32 in context. The rest of the passage says, For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. And his point here is to say... That this idea of the Lord's calling is, um, is behind this statement that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In other, w- in other words, how do people come to call upon the name of the Lord sincerely and from the heart? It is because the Lord has called them. And here Dever is hinting at that doctrine of effectual calling which we have talked about before and I'm sure we'll talk about again. The Lord is sovereign over uh, salvation over conversion. He calls His people to Himself, and as He calls His people to Himself, His people then do call out to Him to the salvation of their souls. Conversion, Dever notes here, certainly includes our own actions. And I might ask you, brothers and sisters, this would be a good opportunity for me to ask you a question. What actions of ours does conversion involve? Any thoughts about that? What, what do we do when we are converted? What do we do? Repent. repent. That's not something that God does for us. It's something that we must do. So to repent is to turn from sin and to Christ. What else do we do in conversion? I just hinted at it. We believe. So these are two sides of the same coin really. A true saving faith involves a turning from sin and to Christ, to trust in Him. That is not something that God does for us, but it is something that God enables us to do by His grace. And so this little phrase here, conversion, certainly includes our own actions. It's an important acknowledgement here. Our confession of faith makes this very clear as well. Um, But the point is that we can do none of this ourselves. Uh, when, When God makes us alive when He gives us this new spiritual birth by His grace. He graciously enables us to turn from sin and to place our faith in Christ. True conversion is a work of God's Spirit, and it bears different fruit than the flesh. And here He points us to Galatians five nineteen through 24 He asks the question, Do, do you want to do you want test, as it were, to know whether or not you have been born again then he points us to galatians 5:19 through 24 and says well what fruit is your life producing uh, no believer lives a perfect life granted but here the fruit of the spirit is set alongside the fruit of the flesh or the works of the flesh rather now the works of the flesh are evident I have here dot 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 because I try very hard to keep my outlines confined to two pages and so I don't have the whole passage spelled out here but Paul in Galatians 5:19 and following has a list of the things that the flesh will produce the works of the flesh are evident and there's all sorts of sinful things that are listed after this But he contrasts it with the fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. As I've said, no Christian is perfect. We all continue to struggle with sin. But if we have been converted truly, if we have truly turned from sin into Christ and have been made new by the working of the Holy Spirit, then we ought to see these characteristics manifest in our life and these former characteristics that once were ours, before we were converted by the power of the Holy Spirit, constantly diminishing. The works of the flesh will, will diminish uh, hopefully very drastically and the works of the Spirit will become more and more evident. We will be people marked by love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, uh, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Um, these are the qualities that the Spirit produces within His people. So I love that He has paired these two things together, conversion and evangelism, um, and it should be evident to you why He has done that. Uh, It's already been said, what you think about conversion is going to have a massive impact on the way in which you go about evangelism. Perhaps I can pause here and just ask you, what do you think He means by this? If you think that conversion is mainly a work that we do, uh, that individuals make a choice to be converted or changed, and that we therefore are responsible to help them do that. Uh, how might that impact the way in which we evangelize? Anyone? Tim? Uh, well, there's a, you. even just from personal experience, there's a, a sense of added pressure uh, upon you, and it's, your, it's it becomes your ability to persuade and close a deal, per se. Yeah, yeah. Dever uses that language in this chapter. He recalls a time where someone who listened to him preach criticized him, saying, "You failed to close the deal as if it were a, a business transaction." And he even says, "Well, it's not my job to close the deal. That's the Lord's work." Yeah, um, an added pressure on us as we do evangelism. Perhaps you've noticed that some uh, some some evangelistic tactics, when you step back from them and look at them closely, they seem to be rather manipulative. I don't know if you've noticed this. Um, and the more you learn about what goes on in some of these crusades, it, it becomes pretty disturbing. In fact, uh, when you find out that people are actually priming the pump, as it were, to get people to come forward in response to the altar call, you know, you have people who are there in the crowd whose job it is to begin to walk forward just to encourage others to do the same. Did you know they do this? Same thing at these mass baptisms, these um, spontaneous baptisms as well. Um, it was true of the Billy Graham crusade and the Harvest Crusade. The Harvest Crusade. My goodness. Um, <laughs> I again. I I don't doubt that the Lord can do good things through these things, through these um, these these events. You know, I, I'm not. If you were saved at a Harvest Crusade, I don't. I don't mean to demean your your salvation in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God. But. I mean, I've known people who just will admit that they went to the Harvest Crusade and went down on the field at the time of the altar call because they wanted to be on the field of Angel Stadium. They wanted to know what it would be like to be down on, on the field <laughs> where the angels play. And they said it without blushing. And I'm thinking, if that's true of these folks, um, how many who go down there aren't just doing that very same thing? Continuously, and then just being lost, They're just never showing up in any local church ever. And it has the appearance of success. It has the appearance of fruitfulness, doesn't it? I mean, really big time, when you can pack a Major League Baseball stadium f- filled with people, massive stage on the field, massive production, and then pe- people streaming down, it really has the appearance of success and fruitfulness. But if you step back from it, you begin to wonder what is going on here, you know? Um, some of the tactics seem to be very manipulative, emotionally manipulative and otherwise. Uh, Robin, you had your hand up for a second and I kind of rambled on about that. but. Did- Yes, so Tim was talking about the unnecessary pressure that might come upon you when you think that uh, conversion is our, you know, salvation and conversion is our work. And and you're emphasizing the freedom that it brings to know that our job is to share Christ with people, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to know that God will work according to his will and all these things. I agree, there's great freedom. Um, uh, Yes, Jody. Yeah. I have to convince you to come because otherwise God's gonna Yes. So you can see why it's important to talk about conversion in connection with the subject of evangelism. What we believe about conversion is going to have a massive impact upon what we think about evangelism and how is it how, how it's to be done. Um, Dever did warn against anemic uh, churches that are anemic or weak in their evangelistic efforts, and we have to be aware of that. Like we can't we can't take so much comfort in this idea that salvation is of the Lord that we become irresponsible ourselves because we know that salvation is of the Lord but yet He is determined to use the proclamation of the Gospel to do this work. So, we have to be responsible. And I do think that as a congregation here at Emmaus we can grow stronger in this area. We can be more faithful in the proclamation of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We can be even more prepared than we now are in the discipleship of... In the discipleship of brand new believers it's it's on my mind and I think we need to get some traction in this regard to be more diligent in our preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this community and even getting back to supporting church planting efforts to the ends of the earth some of those efforts that we've supported in the past have either dried up or things have changed with them so we do have to be careful about anemia in this regard as it pertains to evangelism but at the same time we need not run run into these um, manipulative tactics, thinking that salvation is something that we produce or conversion is something that we uh, work within others. So, let's talk about evangelism briefly. Evangelism is one person telling another person the good news of how he or she can be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice it's telling. Um, you don't evangelize through your way of life, though your way of life is certainly very important. You don't evangelize through your way of life, you evangelize by telling somebody good news. It is a message that must be proclaimed. Some are called to be evangelists so they are called to preach the good news of Jesus Christ in a pronounced way. Um, But all Christians are called to give a reason for the hope that is in them. It is going to be you telling others perhaps in a casual way about the good news of Jesus Christ and how salvation is available through faith in Him. Uh, here, Dever also cites that very famous passage in Romans 10, which which I've come to really love and appreciate, which says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So there it is, uh, going back uh, to, that, um, to that Joel 2.32 passage that we looked at just a moment. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then Paul goes on to say, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him? Of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So, do you see how these things are all linked together? Um, Paul says this is how people come to be saved, by calling on the name of the Lord. But how are they going to call on the name of the Lord? If they never hear about the Lord, and, and how are they going to hear about the Lord unless someone preaches to them? And how are people going to preach to those who do not yet know Christ unless they are sent? Here Paul is talking about the evangel- evangelistic uh, ministry of the church, that, that evangelists need to be sent out to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ so that people might hear and by the working of the Holy Spirit come to believe and call Upon Christ. And this is, of course, connected to the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which is so familiar to you, where Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He spoke this to His to His apostles. He sent them out. This great commission was given to them, but it belongs to us. Uh, through them does it not in in a sense, it belongs to the whole church. The apostles went out and they began to preach and then what did they do they They began to plant churches and they began to appoint elders in the churches and These churches were then responsible to proclaim the gospel in their location and to send others also Antioch sent out Paul and Barnabas in due time and so Throughout the history of the Church, this Great Commission comes to be ours, not mine individually, not yours individually. Uh, you yourself are not called to fulfill the Great Commission alone, but it belongs to us corporately as the Church of Jesus Christ. We, together with all of our unique gifts, are to be concerned with the furthering of the Gospel in this place and to the ends of the earth, uh, so that people come to believe and to be taught all that Christ to obey all that Christ has commanded us this we are to do to the end of the age. And so we must be faithful. Evangelism is a work that we are called to do. Is it is it are we the ones who convert sinners? No, that is God's work, but nevertheless this is the means that God has determined to use. Dever lists six ways evangelism is misunderstood in this chapter. I think these are helpful statements here. Evangelism is not and then he lists six things that evangelism is not. It's a very effective way of clarifying some things. Evangelism is not an imposition of our beliefs on others. Um, The world will look in upon the church and say, you ought not to evangelize, just leave us alone. Don't impose your beliefs upon us. Well, it is not that. It's the church telling the truth concerning God and the way in which we can come to be in a right relationship with Him through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no imposition here. It's simply... The preaching of the gospel, at least there ought not to be imposition. Uh, can men and women be converted truly by with the thread of the sword? Can you put a sword to someone's throat, a knife to someone's throat and convert them? Well, you might end up with what appears to be conversion, but most likely it will not be true conversion, will it? It will be superficial and external. And of course there have been situations in, in the history of the world where uh, Christianity has been advanced in just that way, and we are to look at that and to say, no, it is not the right way uh, to, to seek the conversion of others. We are not to impose our beliefs on others, but we are to proclaim the truth of God's Word to others and trust that the Holy Spirit of God will work as He wills. Evangelism is not simply a personal testimony. Can we use our personal testimony in evangelism? yes. But it is not simply a personal testimony of telling the story of how God has converted you. There is a message that needs to be preached. It's the the good news of Jesus Christ that needs to be proclaimed. And so this is not just about us sharing our stories with other people ultimately, though, of course, uh, that can be uh, useful. Evangelism is not the same thing as social action or political involvement. And you would be surprised with how some churches and denominations have confused these things. Um, in some, some traditions the gospel has really been confused with social action or political involvement. Is it right for us to seek the good of our neighbor? Is it right for us to be involved in society? Yes it is. But do not convert, uh, confuse that with, with evangelism, with the preaching of the gospel, with the furtherance of God's kingdom. Uh, God's kingdom is spiritual And though it may have a good impact upon society, we cannot confuse these things. Ultimately, they are distinct. They are different. Evangelism is not simply encouraging positive thinking. I don't think I need to elaborate on that at all. Evangelism (coughs) is not the same as apologetics. So, apologetics is the defense of the faith. Apologetics might be used in evangelism, but it's not the same thing. Evangelism is the positive proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ... Evangelism is the defense of the faith. It is um, answering the objectors. Perhaps to remove stumbling blocks from their minds so that they might believe the gospel, but they are not the same thing. Evangelism, sixthly, is not to be confused with the results of evangelism. And here is the point that I developed out in the outline here because I think this is really needful to notice. Many Christians and churches today focus on rapid growth. But rapid growth is not necessarily good growth or even real growth. In fact, rapid growth can be cancerous. And he develops that analogy a little bit, I think, on page 107. My daughter was telling me about an interaction that she had with one of her coaches who is a professing Christian, and they started talking about their churches. and So, Kalia was... Uh, sharing with her coach what our church is like yeah we're we're small, and uh, of course, the coach's reply was well we we're small too, but we only started a few years ago we're growing fast <laughs> you, know? you, you just you've seen this you know in terms of how prideful Christians could be when it comes to the the numerical growth of their churches, like it's everything as if this is what The mark of a healthy church is, you know, rapid growth. And maybe their church is healthy, I don't know. Um, But my daughter was just noting how quickly that issue was put to the forefront in the conversation. Well, we're small too, but we only started a few years ago. We're growing really fast. So in other words, God is doing something powerful amongst us. Maybe, maybe not. Not all growth is good growth. In fact, rapid growth can be cancerous. The sudden advances of gospel work we find in the Bible are few. This is a very good observation. Uh, Where do we see really rapid advances as it pertains to the, um, the, 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 the furthering of the kingdom of God in the Scriptures? He mentions the Exodus. That was a very rapid advance, wasn't it, at the time of the Exodus? But you think of how the people of God languished in Egypt for hundreds of years prior to that. And you think of Abraham's sojourning. There wasn't much advance in the days of Abraham, nor in the days of Isaac and Jacob. The people of God on on earth, the covenant people of God, were a very small clan for a very long time. And they went down into Egypt and they languished there. And then all of a sudden the Lord did this mighty work to greatly expand His people to bring them out and to lead them towards the promised land. So, thanks be to God for that rapid advancement it was very significant of course um, we can also think of the the time of the incarnation where the spirit of god is poured out with power and there's all sorts of activity all sorts of miracles happening around christ and his his disciples we could think of the resurrection and pentecost and how quickly the church grew immediately after pentecost you read of you know thousands of souls being baptized on this day and thousands more on the next, and sometimes we read those passages and we assume, well, if we are doing our job and if if God is really at work amongst us, then aren't we going to see something similar? You know thousands of people committing their lives to Christ regularly, but we need to recognize that. Um, these were unique moments in the history of redemption. There were moments of inbreaking. They were moments of of just great transition and change and it may be that the Lord would so work amongst us, but it may be that He does not it, The vast majority of Christians have lived in times where there's no such explosion as it pertains to the advancement of the kingdom of God on earth and so Dever encourages the quiet work of faithfulness. But the quiet work of faithfulness is indicated on the majority of pages in scripture and in the majority of the lives of the people of God throughout the history of the church. I mean, how many ministers have just labored faithfully in little small country churches, you know, and have seen maybe very few converts, or some of our some of the the, the missionary figures that we look upon as being, you know the greatest of the missionaries and the heroes to us when you read their stories you realize that they labored in far off places for decades and didn't see a single convert and yet they persevered in this work and the lord eventually made their work uh, fruitful but it was not explosive growth all at once as we might as we might expect according to the bible evangelism must not be defined in terms of results but only in terms of faithfulness to the message preached that's that's where we must. That, that's how we must define success, brothers and sisters. Are we faithful? Are we faithful to to preach the truth of God's word, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, truthfully? Uh, we long to hear the words, "Well done, good and faithful servant," when we stand before the Lord. Do we not? And that is what matters. Faithfulness is what matters. Whether the Lord used us to convert thousands or only a few, the issue is faithfulness. He wants us... um, I've gotten ahead of myself here. These are my words. We must not forget the doctrine of election. And those are my words because I'm summarizing a whole section of Dever here in brief. And he mentions two passages... 2 Corinthians 2.15-16. Oh, maybe it is that, that one only. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life, who is sufficient for these things. I think it is in this section here that Dever points out how this doctrine of election or predestination actually empowered Paul and others like him to be faithful uh, uh, evangelists and missionaries, uh, even in the face of great difficulty, and even when sometimes the results were very meager, it was this doctrine of election or predestination that motivated them. And you can see it here in 2 Corinthians 2:15 through 16, where Paul is saying, Listen, I'm, I'm faithful to preach the gospel. To some, I'm the fragrance of life to life, but for others, I know that I'm the fragrance of death to death. In other words, this gospel that I preach to some is really a word of condemnation. But to others it is effective to bring them to spiritual life. He realized that. And Paul makes comments there in, in the book of Acts, um, or, or Luke does rather, about Paul's missionary journeys, about how he would go into a certain city, and I forget the chapter and verse right now, but how he would preach the gospel and Luke would say something like this, "...as many as were appointed to salvation believed." And then in another place, God encourages Paul with these words, saying, "...do not be afraid." This is the other text I was thinking of, but I don't think I spelled it out here. Um, "...do not be afraid, I have many people in this city." I mean, Paul had reason to be afraid You know, in in a naturalistic sense. He had been beaten and stoned to death, left for dead uh, at, at certain times... But God says, go into this region, preach the gospel here. I have many people here. In other words, He had His elect there who would would willingly receive uh, the message of the gospel to the salvation of their souls. So, this doctrine of predestination or election is not a hindrance to evangelism or missions. In fact, it is the greatest motivation to faithful evangelism and missions work uh, because We know that we are called to simply be faithful, and that God will draw His people to salvation as He wills. He says, also, Dever does consider the parable of the sower. The sower scattered the same seed on several different kinds of soil. You remember that parable, don't you? The rocky soil, the wayside, the rocky soil, um, the thorny soil, and the good soil. It's the same seed that's scattered, and it's scattered pretty liberally, right? Pretty carelessly. The seed is just thrown everywhere. And yet, some of it produces nothing at all. Some produces, it seems, for a short time, but it's either plucked up or scorched by the heat of the sun. But other seed takes root and produces fruit. Uh, I think the message is this. We're to scatter the seed of the gospel to all who will hear it. And we're to trust that the Lord is going to do the work to prepare the hearts. In fact, um, have you heard that... um, have any of you heard that parable preached on in a different way, with a different application than the one that I just gave? And do you want to tell me what it was, Chad? Oh, well, I, I've, I've heard it preached that the sower is actually Jesus and not us. But I don't know if that's what That's about. not what I was thinking about, actually. But, I mean, I, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, I've, heard, I've heard this emphasized um, get your heart right, make sure that you are the good soul. And, I'm not, and I think there is application to be made there, right? But do you see how it's a different perspective on that parable? As if the parable were really about making sure that your heart isn't hard or stony or uh, filled with weeds or you know, to be sure that it's good and, and well prepared. And there's, there is valid application to be made there. But I'm saying that I think this parable is mainly about the sower, It's about the idea of throwing the seed of the gospel everywhere, knowing that the Lord Himself will produce fruit from it by preparing hearts according to His sovereign will. Uh, And Dever goes on to say that failure to understand this truth can distract well-meaning churches into pragmatic... Oh, here's some harsh words, right? And, And I just say amen to them. Failure to understand this truth can distract well-meaning churches into pragmatic, results-oriented endeavors, and can transform pastors into neurotic people manipulators. Those are harsh words, but they're they're very true in my experience. Churches that buy into this idea that evangelism, successful evangelism, has to do with results—you know, a number, how many decision cards were filled out. How many baptisms did you perform in the last year? And we're not a part of the Southern Baptist Convention or of any other large denomination like this where this sort of thing is emphasized. But a lot of churches are, and the churches that are a part of large denominations like this know that the pastors go to these conventions and they feel the pressure to report big numbers. How many decision cards were filled out this year? How many baptisms did you perform? How many people are on your membership roster? Big pressure upon pastors to produce big numbers because the success of their, their life's work is really determined by the numbers that they produce. And so that's what Deborah is referring to here. Uh, and this pressure can lead well-meaning churches perhaps into pragmatic um, uh, endeavors. What is this? Prag- pragmatism is, the, is when you begin to ask this as the ultimate uh, question. What can we do to get numerical results? What can we do to bring more people in? Of course, that will involve building bigger buildings, having more services. What can we do? It's pragmatism. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be concerned with practical questions, but we definitely must avoid pragmatism. Uh, it, it leads to unhealthy churches. Uh, Results oriented endeavors, he mentions, and then these these are the most harsh words. Pastors being turned or transformed into neurotic people, manipulators. I, I've seen this. Have you seen this? You don't answer. Don't answer. I've seen this. Where where yeah you 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 spend time with some of these men who are in this world and and you, you go there's just there's no authenticity. There, there's something. I, I mean, I've used the word slimy. I don't know if you've ever seen this. But there just seems to be a lack of authenticity, a manipulativeness. Um, I think I made that word up right there. Uh, uh, but yes, it, it's very concerning. Misunderstanding this point can cripple individual Christians with a deep sense of personal failure, and ironically, can cause an aversion to evangelism itself. We've talked about this. And then Dever says straight away on page 109: God is sovereign over. Uh, God is sovereign in evangelism. So, with no time remaining, the very important question why should we evangelize? In brief, we could say out of obedience, God has commanded us to. And then, secondly, because it is the means that God uses. See the Romans 10 13 through 15 uh, passage above. How How should we evangelize? We must pray. We must tell people with honesty that if they repent and believe, they will be saved, but it will be costly. Following Christ in this world is costly. We must tell people with urgency that if they repent and believe they will be saved, but they must decide now. I think it is right for us to speak with that kind of urgency. Tomorrow is guaranteed to no one. It is true. We don't need to manipulate people with this, but we need to tell them the truth, that here here is the offer of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Repent now. Turn to Him now. We must tell people with joy that if they repent and believe the good news, they will be saved. The emphasis here is on joy, despite the difficulty following Christ is a joy. We must use the Bible. We must realize that the lives of individual Christians and the church as a whole are central to evangelism. So we don't evangelize through our way of life. It is not that we just live a good life and people are going to magically come to Jesus you know, because we've lived a good life. But here Dever is acknowledging that the way of, our way of life does matter. In fact, our confession of faith speaks of good works as um, adorning the gospel. I love that terminology. Uh, you know, you bring a Christmas tree into your house, maybe. I don't know if you have this custom or not. Uh, what do you do? You decorate it, you adorn it, you make it look beautiful. Why did that <laughs> illustration come to my mind? It did. And, and I think the same is true with the gospel. Like, the gospel is the gospel. We must proclaim it, but certainly our lives should make the gospel appealing. People should not look in upon us and say, This is the gospel, but you're all a bunch of hypocrites. Why should I believe this gospel and follow this Jesus? You understand. Uh, use the Bible, okay, um, central to evangelism, the lives of individual Christians the church. Build relationships with non-Christians. I think this is very important. To have an opportunity to share Christ, we must rub shoulders with non-Christians. Work with other Christians to take the gospel to those who don't live around any Christians. And there are still people in the world who live in regions like this. He has one last remark here. It's like kind of tagged on to the end of the chapter. Evangelism is not marketing... Uh, the sinner 's prayer is a human tradition it's not found in the Bible. Did you know that the sinner's prayer does coming to faith in Christ, turning from sin into Christ involve prayer i i don't yeah i don't doubt it of course it does, but you know it is you know it's being talked about here um, ever I, I I can't say ever since Billy Graham, but certainly Billy Graham made this popular. You know the evangelistic crusade people come down and what do they do? They say the sinner 's prayer and then they're guaranteed entrance into heaven, supposedly you know some take it that way. The sinner's prayer is, in fact, a human tradition. Look through the pages of the Bible. Nowhere do you find the sinner's prayer mentioned. Um, The same can be said of spontaneous baptisms. Uh, Dever is here um, highlighting a trend that is growing, I guess. Um, I suppose it's better that it be baptism that is used instead of the sinner's prayer. That's a little bit more biblical But he's critiquing here the practice of spontaneous baptisms, this idea that people respond to an altar call at a crusade and then are immediately baptized without any any vetting of their profession of faith to see whether or not it is true, without any preparation or discipleship. The church historically has, um, has prepared people for baptism even using things like catechisms. Uh, to be sure that the knowledge they need to be saved is in fact there and to vet their credible profession of faith. Some of you might be thinking to yourselves, and I know I'm over time, and that's alright. I think it's just the way it is. This is important. Some of you might be thinking to yourselves, um, but what about those spontaneous baptisms in the book of Acts, where the gospel is preached and 3,000 souls are saved and they're baptized on the, on the same day? Here's the reason for that. These souls who believed in Jesus as Messiah and were saved on that day and who were baptized on that day, these souls were coming to Jerusalem as God-fearers to worship Yahweh. They, they understood the Old Testament Scripture so thoroughly and so believed in the God of Israel and in the promised Messiah that they were journeying on foot long distances to come and worship Him at His temple. And when they heard the good news of Jesus Christ, and it's probably not the first they heard of Him in fact, they probably heard of Him in the years leading up to it, they had everything they needed to profess faith in Him with sincerity and with knowledge and, and in truth. You understand Uh, This is not a situation where you are preaching the gospel to people who have never encountered the teaching of the Bible before and then applying baptism to them immediately. You understand this? Again, we have to read the scriptures and ask, is this ordinary or is this something unique that was going on in the earliest days of the church? So, spontaneous baptisms, this is to be avoided Manipulative tactics ought not to be employed to produce responses to altar calls. Perhaps those are my words summing up Deborah here. So here is Dever's conclusion. Here is his resolve, and I think it is good. I'm going to preach the gospel, trying to persuade, but knowing that I cannot convert, and then stand back while God uses all His divine powers to convict and change the sinner. That's the good news we want to see our churches built on. Not what we can do, but what God has done and will do, if you believe in Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Father, do help us to be healthier in this regard, to be more faithful in our evangelism. I pray that You would move us to speak of Christ crucified and risen in the hope that is in Him. We do long to see our church grow in number, uh, but we long to see it grow in truth. Uh, Would You add people to us, O Lord? Would You cause others to bow the knee and say, Jesus is Lord, in sincerity and in truth. May they be added to us and may may they grow in Christ, learning to obey all that He has commanded. Have mercy upon us, have mercy upon this land, O Lord, and use us. I pray that you would make us fruitful, O God. And if we do not have it, give us a desire to be fruitful, O Lord. I pray that we would hear those words on the last day, well done, good and faithful servant. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.